Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Here with Ben Carlson of Fortune Magazine and Ritholtz Wealth, one of my favorite investing writers. Do stay with us. This week's episode is sponsored by Evo Advisors, offering financial advice that is globally experienced and locally based. For those who have more than a 401k to manage, visit GoEvoAdvisors.com. That's GoEvoAdvisors.com. Joining me from chilly Grand Rapids, Michigan, is none other than Ben Carlson, Director of Institutional Asset Management at Ritholtz Wealth. He is a new columnist for Fortune Magazine. He authored the wonderful book, A Wealth of Common Sense, and his follow-up is a book on financial scams. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. It's actually humid in Michigan in the in the summer, so we get about two good months of weather. I always think of Michigan and my pal Chris Porter. I, I, I think he's a youper. Uh, you know, he's from Muskegon. I don't know if that counts as youper, but I've always wanted to catch a muskellunge. Have you ever caught one of those? Uh, not much of a fisher, I guess. Oh. Uh, but you are quite an investor. How's that for transition? I've been reading you for quite some time uh, with the Ritholtz crew. We've had Barry Ritholtz on. We've had Josh Brown on. And I'm having you on my show, sir, simply because you are one of my favorite investing writers. I put you up there with Jason Zweig, with some of the best uh, people who kind of have a handle on uh, the main street's lack of of handle on finances with being able to demystify all the BS that Wall Street throws your way. So it is an honor to have you back on the show again. Well, I think I think most of the stuff I've probably just stolen from guys like Jason Zweig, so I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. Take a compliment. Let a man kvel. You can look that up in a Yiddish dictionary if you'd like. I, I am front and center chiefly interested in this idea that um, – the United States Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, is interested in easing in spite of the fact that the economy, by all measures, is on fire. Uh, we have many central banks and many countries around the planet at negative interest rates, which kind of suggest for our lay listeners out there more of a kind of a recessionary emergency situation where you want money to be very cheap so businesses go out there and spend and people invest. It's very unusual to consider that the United States is really at full employment. Like I've said before, the stock market's at an all-time high. The Wall Street Journal just wrote about flippers being back in the real estate market. And you have the Federal Reserve telegraphing that it wants to cut interest rates. Oh, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like an odd way to go about it. But I mean, is it possible the Fed hiked rates for the last few years just so they could then then lower them again? I guess one of the things that my whole takeaway from this is you know, not only do most investors not know what's going to happen, obviously the Fed doesn't either, because if, if they're just going to do this now, what was the point of raising the rates in the first place? Uh, so, so maybe the, the Fed knows a lot less than, than most people think in the markets. But uh, I, <laughs> I don't know. It, it's a funny time, and we have all this. We have these trillions of dollars in uh, negative interest rates around the world, whereas, you know, five or six years ago, everyone thought that, rates were just going to go sky high and stay sky high in places like Europe. And uh, so I think if I'm trying to predict the future, interest rates are not the first place I'm going to try to do it in. So there's so much attention paid to interest rates. Disproportionately, I mean, the Fed watchers on on Twitter and LinkedIn, and if you watch something like Bloomberg Television, it's almost like a fetish. Remember they used to follow Alan Greenspan's uh, briefcase to try to divine the tea leaves at the Federal Reserve. There's a headline today on Bloomberg that the German 10-year benchmark bond yield falls to negative 0.33%, a new record low. I, I, by no indication, I mean, I know... Uh, Europe had quite a deep recession in 2010 and 2011 when all these economies were on the brink and they had to be failed out. But how does it work that money, you know, the German bond yield is negative yielding 
right now in this global economy. So in his latest uh, investor letter, Howard Marks said, you know, it's probably time to start thinking through the, the idea that maybe it's more psychological than anything. And let's say the Fed did all the same stuff they're doing, but didn't tell anyone about it. Would, would the markets have the same reaction? Because there's been stuff like QE going on in Japan. Quanti- quantitative easing. Japan. Yeah, quantitative easing in places like Japan and Europe. And they haven't had nearly the same reaction we've had in terms of stock price, stock prices. And so maybe a lot of what's going on with, with the Fed, uh, obviously they can affect the supply and demand in the bond market by buying up bonds and maybe affect the interest rates in some ways. But in terms of other assets and maybe anything to do with the economy, maybe it's more psychological than people want to assume. Because on the one hand, you have people who say the Fed is manipulating the markets. On the other hand, you have people who say, well, the Fed, there's nothing they can really do. It's probably somewhere closer to the middle. But in terms of investor sentiment and that sort of stuff, maybe the, the Fed isn't so omnipotent and maybe it's it's more psychological and the market is just kind of taking cues off what they think is going to happen in the future. You know, again, the Fed is not omniscient. I'm going back to the minutes of the Federal Open Market Committee and in keeping interest rates you know, largely where they were. We talk about the spring of 2007 and we knew what kind of came down the pike in the fall of, of 2007 with, uh, you know, everything that happened with, with Bear Stearns and then the ripple effect into 2008. Uh, I'm reading from the minutes here. It says, the information reviewed at the March meeting, this is back in 2007, indicated that the economy appeared to be expanding at a modest pace in the first quarter. Declines in residential construction activity continued to weigh on overall activity, and business investment had softened considerably over the preceding several months, especially in equipment used in the construction and motor vehicle industries. However, consumer spending had increased appreciably in the early part of the year, and labor demand continued to expand, albeit at a somewhat slower place than last year. Um, okay, close quote. The Fed... Then you talk about less than 15 months later, brings interest rates to zero at an emergency level and then proceeds into the teeth of the worst crisis uh, since the Great Depression to print, what, $2 trillion of money further to throw at the economy? And it's kind of hard to believe that rates were closer to, you know, 5 to 7% back then going into the late 90s, whereas now we think that Fed raising it to 2.5% seems high. So it's, it's, I guess it's always a relative world. But I look back. And since 1970, the Fed has raised rates or lowered rates almost 200 times. So they've, they've raised rates 100 times since 1970. They've lowered them like 80 times. And so either the Fed is really, really good at this or they're really, really bad. And maybe it's, again, somewhere in the middle. But they do a lot of movement on this stuff that I, I think is, is trying to calm fears. And I, and I think the Fed has, has had an impact on the markets in terms of them being more mature, maybe stable over time. But, uh, Again, I think that them trying to control what happens and where things are going, it's its not as much in their control as people would like to believe. And so how much of this do you think is self-inflicted? Even though we just recently hit an all-time high, there's a tremendous amount of hand-wringing over the trade war with China and jawboning Mexico. And are we going to have issues in the Strait of Hormuz that, that kind of send an exogenous shock into oil prices? What do you think? Well, maybe I'm giving him a little too much credit here, but is it, is it possible that Donald Trump has has saved us from a massive melt-up in the stock market because we've had low interest rates. We, we've had really no reason besides this trade war tariff stuff for markets to sort of crash. And we had that nearly 20% decline at the end of the year, which kind of seemed like it happened for, for no reason whatsoever. We had a minor bump correction earlier this year. Uh, I mean, is it possible we could have just gotten stocks taken off and we get back to sort of these nosebleed 1990 levels if something like this didn't happen. Because it is kind of amazing to think, I looked the other day, we've had 210 new all-time highs since it was first breached in 2013 from those lows. 
wow. in uh, 2009. So despite everything that's happened and people always complaining about uncertainty, the stock market continues to just be this Teflon market that just won't quit. And, you know, is it possible without an administration who can't seem to get out of its own way that we would have even higher stock market prices? First, could you define melt-up? I think that's been thrown around quite a bit. Maybe people are not familiar with it. It's kind of a – it's really the obverse of a meltdown, this, this – um, unyielding increase in stock prices, just fear of missing out, FOMO, 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 bid it up, bid it up, bid it up, and uh, it's relentless upward. Well, it seems like the one thing we haven't got, even though this has been, you know, 10 good years of stock market returns, we haven't really got that euphoric period yet. I think there's there's maybe been bits and pieces of euphoria here and there. You could say something like the cryptocurrencies maybe had a little bit of, bit of euphoria, but nothing like we saw in something like the tech bubble or even like the Japanese bubble in the, the late 80s where people were, you know, in the 90s, people were quitting their jobs, becoming day traders. We haven't really had that. And my colleague, Josh Brown, who, who you know and have spoken with before, he has a really good theory on this and the fact that we've had so much money go into places like Vanguard and iShares and lower-cost ETFs and index funds that, that are just kind of boring, that Wall Street hasn't really taken part in this bull market. And you almost need Wall Street and the banking industry to have that euphoria because because they're the ones who sort of, throw the lighter fluid on the fire and get things going. And, and they haven't really enjoyed this as much as, as they usually do because they haven't taken part as much because all this money is just going into this, this behemoth of Vanguard and these other index funds and ETFs. Which, as we've said before, those are a function of be the market, don't beat the market. A lot of people having this really, it's almost a, a bullish and positive learned helplessness where, listen, I really can't hire a broker to, to do better than the S&P 500 85% of the time. I can buy something that's super cheap, that has unbelievable easy access to it. I could buy two shares of it or 2,000 shares of it. And you don't need to call a broker or a mutual fund and wait for the 4 p.m. price to print. It's, it's really um, so accessible to everybody right now. And mom and pop are often called the dumb money and they have for years, and, you know, the, the guy from Goldman Sachs, famously called a lot of his clients Muppets, but there's, there's trillions of dollars now that are, that are looking pretty smart, especially over this last 10 years of, you know, mom-and-pop retail investors that have finally figured out that, you know, for a long time they were the sucker at the poker table, and they've stopped playing that game. And one of the things that people think in that realm is, well, if, if everyone is going to index funds, that'll make active investing much easier because there'll just be more opportunities, and... The way that I look at it is there's still so many smart people out there that are trying to, you know, go through this quest to beat the market. There's, what are the 300,000 Bloomberg terminals in the world or something that has more information and you could look at in one day than people would have had in, in their whole careers back in the day. And when you take the suckers off out of there, it's just intelligent people competing against more intelligent people. And I actually would posit that that makes it harder to beat the market because your competition is different now that you've taken away the suckers at the game. Hmm. You know, in the facts that you threw out, it's pretty uh, stunning just on market corrections, which now it seems like a distant memory that at the end of 2018, we had a near 20%. Doesn't that define a bear market, nearly 20%? Yeah, 20% is kind of the, the rule some people go by. We've had a couple, actually, that have hit 19% and change. Uh, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it was a very brief bear. It was like a bear baby, a bear cub that came out. But you wrote that since 1950, the Standard & Poor's 500 index, which is the most commonly cited index in the country, has experienced an intra-year peak to trough pullback of 5% or worse in 65 out of 70 years. So roughly 93% of the time, a 5% correction has taken place from 1950 to 2019. The only years that didn't experience that drawdown in excess of 5% were 
1954, 1958, 1964, 1995, and 2017. Um, you know, almost 40% of the time, stocks didn't fall double digits and stayed in the 5 to 10% range. Another 38% of the time, stocks fell 10 to 20% from the highs. And 16% of the time, losses were in excess of 20%. I got to tell you, precious few people remember 2008 and 2009. That drawdown from peak to trough was almost, what, 54%? Yeah, something like that. And and I think the the, the reason it's it's easy to have that sort of lapse in memory these days is because the snapbacks have been so quick. We, I mean, we hit new all-time highs again after that December mini, you know, mini correction that was close to 20% really quickly. It happened in just a couple short months. And so you're getting these V-shaped rallies where it, it just happens so quickly. And I think that's the stuff that people have forgotten about is that we could have this either bear market or even like a sideways market that goes nowhere for a few years. And that's that's a lot more painful than just these quick snapback rallies where people don't really have a chance to, to think about it and feel it and, and, you know, make some overreactions when things are down. Hey, what, what does an investor do if you are indexed and you're in it and you're not timing the market? And between fear of missing out and fear of getting singed like 2008 and 2009, you know, we've been told now for three or four years, there have been writers out there, Henry Blodgett, clearly uh, Schiller and the CAPE ratio, that U.S. stocks are really fully priced and priced for perfection. You should take the money and put it in international or raise cash or buy something that's very rarely undervalued, like value, for example. Cheap PE stocks, cheap multiple stocks have been really out of favor while the world goes after the likes of Facebook, Amazon, Apple until recently, uh, Netflix. Uh, recently, we've had this this fake meat boom where Beyond Meat shares were surging left and right. Uh, whatever happened to uh, this idea of, of, of you know, gaining more out of diversifying globally? It's almost been a lost decade for international. It really has. And in a lot of ways... Yeah, if you've been anything outside of large-cap U.S. stocks, you've kind of underperformed. And so the idea is that diversification means always having to say you're sorry. Well, if you've been diversified for the last 10 years, you've been saying sorry a lot. And and that's kind of the way it works with us at our practice, too, and it's kind of tough. But it, it wasn't that long ago where the U.S. had a lost decade in the 2000s. Yeah, people forget 2000 to 2009, 2010, you were very well served to be in an emerging markets. And so these these things definitely happened in the 70s and 80s. The U.S. trailed considerably, most likely because of of Japan and a lot of the gains there and the out there in the the Far East. So it, these sort of periods happen, and they can these cycles can last longer than you could imagine. But eventually, that that mean reversion will kick in. But it, it, it's really hard for investors to sort of stick with something like this and and rebalance into the pain because you have these higher dividend yields and lower valuations in, in international markets. Now that's not to say that U.S. market valuations are immediately going to come back and go back to these averages that have been seen since the 1870s just because people think that they have to. I mean, I think that there is potentially an argument to be made that maybe a more mature U.S. economy should have higher valuations. And because we have more of a tech sector, you know, that conversation should maybe be had. That, That may sound a little toppy at the moment where we're sitting, but... I think that's something that's that's worth considering, especially depending on, again, the future path of, of interest rates from here. You know, the NASDAQ right now is very nearly at 8,000. It's at 7,800, as I quote today. If I take you back to the low around March of 2009, I believe it was closer to 1,700. Um, and it's just had a meteoric rise as, as new constituents have gone into it. I'm old enough to remember when NASDAQ 5,000 at the turn of the century was thought about. You know, it was March of, of 2010. 
that, oh, we're never going to attain that nosebleed level again. And we quickly broke through when the Netflix is what, – what, what are they called? Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. They became the new – you know, the, the five horsemen of, of tech. Um, I wonder when I step back from this, there's this school of thought and the late Jack Bogle, who you and I admired a lot, um, was was on the record as saying that you don't really need to diversify past the S&P 500. You're getting United States-based companies with U.S.-based transparency and they have to follow securities laws and listing laws and quarterly earnings and uh, Reg FD and everything. There, There isn't an element as much as Banana Republic economies. And in the end, we're told time and again that these companies, the S&P 500, derive close to half of their sales. Internationally, I mean, um, you know, we've had Tom Gaynor on the show uh, from Markel, and he, he asked me when I posed this question to him, he goes, you tell me, is Honda a U.S. company or a Japanese company? I mean, look at the sales that Honda derives from the United States. Is Caterpillar a U.S. company or is it an international company? What do you what, – what, to the extent that your approach at cocktail parties and people say, is, is the S&P 500 index a sufficiently, you know, worthwhile mousetrap for me? What do you say to them? I think the – I mean, th- there's always the risk of – this home country bias where you feel more comfortable investing in companies that, that you know and can appreciate. And it works across all countries. And the U.S. makes up about 50% of the overall global the overall global market cap. And so it's much easier for a U.S. investor to be this, have this home country bias because we have such a large piece. But even in places like Canada, that's this much smaller piece of the market. They invest the majority of their money in Canadian stocks. And it, it works like this. Vanguard's done a study. It works like this across just about all countries. The problem is, if you get into the situation where you invest in that country at an inopportune time, and so it's not just the, the biggest risk for most investors isn't simply just bad markets. It's it's sort of bad markets at a bad time. And so, if you have all your eggs in that one basket, and the U.S. goes on to have ten, fifteen, twenty years of just poor performance, and the rest of the world laps it and passes it by, you know that's that's a hard thing to take if you're a retiree and you really need to rely on that money. So that's kind of the thing. Diversification is not always going to offer you similar returns with lower risk like the modern portfolio theory says. I think the thing that it's good for is not sort of accounting for bad days or weeks or months or years. It's accounting for sort of bad decades. And you don't never want to get a situation where you have all your money in a place like Japan, which has I've seen an equity market that's gone nowhere for basically 30 years, 30 or 40 years yeah. now. So I think that's that's kind of the risk that you're trying to. Now I would I don't think I, you could accurately compare the U.S. and Japan in terms of us having a more dynamic economy than them, but you can't rule out having an extended period of time where one market doesn't do as well as it's done in the past just because you have this historical track record to point to. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Ben Carlson. He's a new columnist at Fortune Magazine. He's one of my favorite investing writers, bar none. I love his stuff. Uh, You have to read it on Twitter, on LinkedIn, wherever it's available. Uh, He is Director of Institutional Asset Management at Ritholtz Wealth. I do have to put in a plug, Ben, in that we announced it today. uh, By way of plugging full disclosure, we are elated to announce that we're going to have our live concert show, our first one on November 10th, with the band Not A Surf. We're going to be talking to them on their 25th year anniversary, uh, followed by a full concert at Richmond's Historic National Theater Sunday, November 10th. Tickets go on sale this week at facebook.com slash radio. You can go to the Nationals website. You can go to notasurf.com. Please pencil in that date, Sunday, November 10th. And Ben, you're welcome to fly in on your private jet from uh, Grand Rapids. Robin, I am a child of 90s music, so um, I, I know at least popular was one of my favorite 90s 
video, so I, I'm well aware of not a surf. Well, this band has a great story in that they were uh, dumped, apparently, by their record label after that blockbuster debut CD. And this is the story of how they kind of got in a van and they went across the country and gigged and raised money to cut their follow-on CD, which was real breakthrough in 2002. It was a comeback. And they're still making a living in the industry. You talk, you know, almost uh, 17 years later. So you're welcome to come and, and, and sit with me in the VIP booth with unlimited champagne, sir. All right. Let's get back to investing. You recently had a column kind of on this idea of what we see in our neighbors in the era of everything being Instagrammed. The grass is really greener on the other side. Um, This survey that Charles Schwab did on uh, friends and wealth, according to the survey, three in five Americans pay more attention to how their friends spend compared to how they save, with an equal number saying they're at a loss to understand how their friends are able to afford the expensive vacations and trendy restaurant meals they portray on social media. Talk to me about that column in the podcast you guys did. Well, I mean, the idea is that, you know, everyone looks at toys people have or big houses or nice cars, and they think, oh, those people must have a lot of money. And like the first step in the investing process has to be you know, living below your means in some capacity. It doesn't matter how much money you make. If you don't set any aside and you don't spend less than you earn, you know, you're not really truly wealthy. And so the idea is, you know, wealth is the stuff that you can't see. So the stuff you see on Instagram, you know, that's, that's not always, that's wealth. That's not wealth. That's a lot of times it's fake stories and uh, airbrushed models and all this stuff. And the, the life is never as, as glamorous as it appears. But the, if you really want to truly build wealth, eventually you have to sort of delay gratification. That's the, that's the whole idea of, of investing is, is delaying consumption now for consumption later. So it's kind of hard to wrap your head around the fact that the people you see who might have debt up to their eyeballs are not truly wealthy because they're not really setting aside any money for themselves. Well, talk to me about this. I remember my first job was in the brokerage industry out of college. By the skin of my teeth, I got that job. And when you know, HR at, at Goldman Sachs was telling me about the exquisite, you know, sumptuous 401k match and all the different things you could buy into. My eyes glazed over. I was like, I'm 22, man. I want to save from my sweet penthouse condo in Miami's Brickle Avenue. You know, I want to uh, I, I want to take out the various women who are making overtures to me and stuff. I don't got time for a 401k, son. And now, kind of in my mid-age, I, I do regret the opportunity cost of those lost years in my 20s. That money would have compounded like mad. And I'm definitely not one of those people who sits back and scolds young people for not saving because I think, you know, I enjoyed myself in my 20s, and, and I'm glad I did now that I have three young children because I kind of got a lot of that out of my system. But I, I think I would still develop good saving habits. And so I think the idea is to, especially when you're young, just start really small and start slowly but surely putting money away periodically. And it doesn't even have to be a lot of money. It can be 25, 50 bucks a month. I think the, the biggest thing is just start developing those habits and, and really automating it. And just, it, it doesn't mean you have to, to live on bread and water all the time. I think you still have to enjoy yourself and not completely give up your life. But I think you have to balance it out a little bit where, especially if you're a young person with a 401k and you get a match, if you're turning that down, you're turning down a free 100% return right off the bat for not even doing anything. I mean, that's like turning down a, a raise from your company. You have to admit, uh, you know, in your experience with Ritholtz Wealth and dealing with millennials and even late Gen Xers, it's a very difficult thing to convey to people. You sound like, you sound like a librarian or, you know, like Mr. T would come on different strokes and tell you to not to do drugs or to drink milk and stay in school. It's a very hard sell to a restless 22-year-old. Yeah, no, they don't think about the long term. The long, you might you, you might as well be describing never because no one thinks about that many decades in advance. And I think that's why 
one of the best things that these retirement systems have done is just intelligent plan design, and a lot of it is based on the stuff that uh, Richard Thaler wrote, who's the behavioral psychologist from University of Chicago, and he developed this idea that you know everyone is automatically enrolled in their in their workplace retirement plan if they have one right off the bat, and if they want to get out of it, they have to actually go through the process of opting out. And they found these huge gains in these retirement systems that actually go through this process. Instead of having someone opt in and go through the process and filling out paperwork, to just make them opt out because people are sort of lazy and inertia, you know, sets in and people will just kind of leave things as a status quo. So if you just get people to, to not have to sign up for it and just put them in there automatically, that's actually a pretty good solution to help them start saving. And then the other thing is over time, they also have these kickers where they'll, they'll increase the amount people save over time, which is a great idea. And I think that's the way that young people can sort of slowly start to see these savings build is just start really small and then build it up over time until they get to a place where they're really comfortable um, after some time. I'm thinking of the Pink Floyd song, Welcome to the Machine, or the the, uh, the chorus, when I'm, I'm you know told about the advent of robo-advising that really takes human emotion out of it, that takes the, the fallible broker and his conflicts of interest and everything and just dispassionately allocates assets and is cold-eyed about everything and machine-like, like, like Hal in 2001, but hopefully doesn't turn around and kill you. And I think that's like the idea, even for the professionals have to do that in a lot of ways, because even if you're someone who knows a lot about the markets and you've invested and you've got this experience, that doesn't mean you're immune. That just means you're you're privy to these different biases. And so maybe the people who don't who aren't paying attention to this stuff all the time, they may be a little irrational or not understand it very well. But the people who have experience with it, they can become overconfident. And so all of us have these sort of lesser selves that have to be taken out of the equation. So even for us as wealth managers, we have to figure out ways of of sort of being rules-based and keeping our emotions out of the process because it's not like we're just going to stick our finger in the air and figure out the way the wind's blowing and, and make decisions that way. We have to have some sort of rules to get our, our process as well. So I think for any investor, they have to think through how to, how to automate good decisions in advance. Ben, you're a, uh, you're a father, correct? Yes. How old's your youngest? Uh, well, we have two-year-old twins and a five-year-old. So what are you doing in terms of planning out T-minus 16 years for the two-year-old twins? I'm always, you know, I always ask uh, successful investors and, and smart money investors, this thing is kind of a Rorschach to bring it back to the main street level. I mean, if you're hearing all these things about a period of prolonged, subdued returns in the United States, and then you're getting all this literature from your 529 company, and you should be raising cash, uh, obviously, if you pay attention to these gold commercials and uh, people like uh, what's his name, Peter from Euro Pacific Capital. <laughs> uh, what Peter? You Peter Schiff, kind of you know, and and you're like, well, I do, ha- I can't time the market, but I kind of do have to time the market, and then I'm intensely focused on uh, raising the money for my child's freshman year of college. What do you tell a person with a T minus sixteen or T minus eighteen year outlook? Well, I'll tell you what what we've done personally, and so we opened five twenty nines when our children were born and started funding them. And it's one of those things that is impossible to completely plan out for because you're trying to figure out, well, what's the inflation rate of college going to be from now to then? And how much is it going to cost for tuition? And I think there's no perfect way to plan for it. I think you do have to try to take advantage. And so a 529 is a good way to take advantage of a tax deferral that you can get. And they even have easy fund choices where it's almost like a target date retirement fund for saving for college, where it'll start out aggressive 
and be more heavily invested in stocks, and then it'll get more heavily invested in bonds as you get closer, so you're not taking too much risk with that money when you need to actually spend it. And that's actually something that we use. The Michigan plan has a pretty good 529 plan. Some people in other states don't have great plans, and they may have to go outside of their own state to find one. But I think that's another thing where if you kind of run the numbers on compounding, you know, saving for 18 years at a little amount is going to be much better than saving for seven or eight years at a much greater amount. And so you're not really freaking out and trying to backload things. You can allow compounding to do a little bit of the lifting for you. And, again, I think there's there's no way – everyone – and this is true of any financial planning. You're, you're making guesses in a lot of ways. And then as actual results come in, you can kind of update those guesses and get a little more of an accurate picture as you get closer to that goal or whatever you're saving for. I think that's the idea with college is that, well, we're guessing we're going to spend X, but we really don't know. So let's put away, you know, X amount per month and then maybe increase it a little bit every single year. And as we get closer, we can see how close we are to that goal and then figure out, well, if we're not going to hit that goal, we're going to have to figure out another way to, um, you know, come up with that shortfall or talk to our kids that, you know, you're going to have to come up with, you know, get your own job or something like that. And I think that's kind of the conversation people need to have is just, figuring out, you know, if there's a shortfall, and I think there, are, there is for a lot of people when you consider the student debt numbers, you know, how are we going to rectify that? You know, I'm a real avid uh, 529 nut squirreler, and I was surprised reading recently in the Wall Street Journal or one of the magazines that it's not as popular as you would think. Uh, not many parents, as kind of the numbers expected 20 years ago, are availing themselves of this as a way to have tax-deferred savings uh, to take advantage of compounding, especially when you look at, as you mentioned, college increasing at a multiple of, of the rate of inflation. And unfortunately, I think there's, there's so many accounts out there now these days that it's probably confusing for people because you could have a 401k or 403b at your workplace. There's HSAs where you could do the health savings account, and then you have an IRA that you could be saving in, and then you have a 529. So I think for a lot of people, it just kind of goes down the list in terms of the hierarchy and priorities. And so I think it's tough for people to really wrap their heads around it. I would love for the solution to be that the government just does away with all these small minimums and makes one big account that is, can be used for everything. Uh, I'm probably a pipe dream, but uh, that's something that I would like to see then open up their thrift savings plan for everyone. But uh, that would be a stretch for the government to actually think that far in advance, I think. Are you one of these uh, fathers in one of these states with uh, great public universities are thinking that I wish for my kid to go K through 12 at a public school to be an honor roll kid that gets in-state tuition or a governor's scholarship, and then I can crack that 529 by year four, and that's the best uh, investment that I can make in the way of, of payment versus return on investment. I mean, you hear a lot of parents talking about this. I'm not far from UVA. You hear it at UNC. These uh, public programs have really seen a surge in in admissions and applicants from more expensive schools saying that I can get the same caliber of education, but there's a price arbitrage. I mean, that would be the, the hope that you'd think a lot of these really rich private schools or these really expensive private schools would eventually come back down to earth a little bit. I went to a small private college, and I look at, I think that I graduated in, I guess, the mid-2000s, and tuition has doubled since I left. I just don't see how something like that is, is sustainable. So, I, I guess that'd be the hope. Uh, obviously, sometimes kids, especially making decisions at 17, 18 years old, don't always follow through with the parents' plans. So I guess you just have to, to roll that a little bit. But uh, yeah, I could get behind uh, the public university. <laughs> ben, talk to me about how you discuss uh, money with your older child. Um, 
are there lemonade stands? I mean, here's a here's a thing that my wife and I talk about is cash is disappearing rather quickly. So it's not quite as instructive to have a lemonade cart on the side of, of, of the house with all these cars passing by. We've done it before, and a lot of people just don't carry cash anymore. How can you teach them about an allowance, about savings and piggy banks and everything if that underlying currency uh, means of transaction is just disappearing? Yeah, we're just getting there, too. And I've, been, I've actually been reading some, some books about this. There's a good book by a guy named David Owen who wrote called The National Bank of Dad, and he, he tried to teach his kids how to save a little bit. And he said he'd pay them some interest on it, but he kind of said, you know, it's kind of like young people trying to save retirement. Like trying to get your kids to think about the long term is, is basically this place that doesn't really exist. And I guess he ended up paying a pretty, you know, big interest payment, like 10% a month for his kids so they could actually see some sort of return. And we, we've tried with our daughter to, to give her, you know, $1 bills or $21 bills and say, hey, you can go to the dollar store and get 20 little things, or you can go to the other toy store and get one big thing that you really like. So we're, we're trying to explain it that way, slowly but surely. I'm actually still uh, open for suggestions from people on, on how to teach that because I think it's, it's a really tough concept for, for young people to understand. And, and like you said, with, with you know cash sort of going away, and I'm one of those people who uses my credit card for everything to sort of get the rewards points, it's, it's hard because it's just a swipe or a click of a button now, and it feels like just fake money or these little, you know, computer credits that you don't even see. And so it, it, you don't really feel the impact of your wallet getting smaller anymore. You ran right into my next query. Credit cards you wrote in May can be your best friend or your worst enemy, depending on how they're used. So it really depends on the user. Unpack that for me. Well, I mean, I'm one of those people that pays off my credit card every month and just uses it more or less for the rewards points and some of the other, you know, ancillary benefits. But there are other people out there who obviously don't do that, and they're the ones that are sort of subsidizing the rewards earners because these credit cards wouldn't be able to offer those rewards if there weren't people that were paying off their balance every month. And so, you know, I think it can be someone's worst enemy if they use it for everything and just don't think about how much they're spending. On the other hand, you know, a credit card is a great way to sort of track your spending. I think that's one of the hard things for people in personal finances. You know, budgeting is a four-letter word. And no one likes to talk about budgeting and tracking their spending. And actually putting all your spending on, on one card allows you to sort of do that if you can actually pay attention to it and log into your account and, and see what you're doing with it. It just depends on how, how much of a financial financially responsible adult you can be with this stuff. What about the broader disruption of the banking industry? We had the finance editor of The Economist on several weeks ago, and kind of you would expect at this point with disruption having happened everywhere else, kind of in journalism, in music – in Hollywood, uh, with cable and cord cutters and newspapers, that it would come to banking as well, that it would disintermediate kind of the lazy, too-big-to-fail players that, you know, as we say, J.P. Morgan has rolled up, Washington Mutual, Providian, uh, uh, you know, was it Bank One, everything else in it, and is in no mood to do any favors for you, either with, you know, fatter interest savings accounts or not nickel and diming you for certain things or following a fiduciary standard. So why haven't you seen more successful kind of third parties to come in, kind of in the vein that, that Venmo is very popular with millennials? I think that all the technology companies have realized that they don't like dealing with regulations very much. And there's a lot more regulations in the banking industry than there are in the technology industry. And I think it's just hard because there's been a lot of interesting-sounding fintech ideas, and they're all sort of still niche players at this point. And now we had something last week of the Facebook announcing their Libra idea of a digital currency, and maybe that's something where a tech player 
gets involved. But I think that it's just harder to get around the regulations in the space and, and really make any headway. And I think there's just so much inertia in that space, too. It's like changing your dentist. You know, once you have your dentist set, it's hard to go through and get your records changed to another office. And the same thing works in banking where, yeah, I'm earning 0.08% on my savings account, but then all my bill payments are already locked into this account. And I know my account numbers, and I really don't want to have to go through and change those. So, okay, I'll just, I guess I'll just stick with Big Bank A here and not make the change. And so I think it's another thing of inertia where people just aren't really, you know, acting with their walking, you know, walking away quite yet. Well, walking away, where can you walk to if I say that it has indeed been a lost decade for savers? And we're talking about the Federal Reserve not even back to anywhere close to where interest rates were before the financial crisis, about to cut interest rates again. Um you know, the lost constituency in this is the the saver, the person who behaved and kept money stockpiled in a, you know, micro-yielding CD or savings account and has been punished. What do they call it during the financial crisis was financial repression, stealing from these people to recapitalize the banks and subsidize uh, those that want to take out mortgages for homes? Well, I mean, the, the easiest thing for most people, and there, there's something like $8 trillion sitting in these low interest rate savings accounts at banks, which is crazy, the, the fact that people aren't really paying attention to this stuff. So the banks are able to pay out, pay you nothing and then uh, loan out that money and, and make a decent spread on the interest rate. So anything like a, the first step for most people is just going to an online bank account. And that could be through anyone. Capital One has one. Uh, Goldman Sachs actually has a really good one called Marcus Now. There's a few of them that because they don't have a brick and mortar presence and it's an online bank, they can pay you higher interest rates. So you can get anywhere from two to two and a half percent, call it now, and maybe that'll go down when, if, if and when the Fed lowers rates in the coming months here. But those short-term interest rates are, are much higher than you can get on something at a, at a big bank. So that's kind of your first step. And it's really easy to transfer money in and transfer it out. And, and there's, there's no fees and there's no minimums. And so a lot of those accounts are, are really easy for people to just earn a little bit on their savings. It's not nearly as much as it was in the past, but it's much better than sitting on nothing. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm telling you, when I first came to the United States, my father was so proud. We came from Iran uh, that in Miami, he took me to American Savings and Loans and got me a passbook savings account. And they gave us a toaster and a Hamilton Beach blender. And I think this was during the, the Paul Volcker tightening era. And I just remember things said 15%, 16%. The banks were just catered to you, man. And there's just nothing like that right now. And I kept thinking that, gosh, had only told anyone told this immigrant father that had you put money into a, a Vanguard fund or a basic mutual fund back then when Business Week, a few years after Business Week, declared the death of equities, that would have been the right thing to do for your son. And that's kind of what keeps me up at night right now as fiduciary for my children is, you know, how do I... I wonder if kind of the rules are thrown out the door. You wrote a column on what if interest rates stay this low for a long time. How can you count on bonds as ballast in a portfolio if they're kind of distorted by the Fed keeping its thumb on the scale for so long? What if, you know, what if I dare ask, it is different this time? So I looked at the 10-year Treasury market going back to the 1920s. And so it's not without precedent that rates stay low for a long time. So, so leading up to and after the Great Depression, for it was like a 35-year period from 1924 to the mid or late 1950s, rates were kind of stuck in this 2 to 4% range and didn't really break out until the 1960s. And so my sort of thought exercise there was, what if this happens again? What if we're something of a Japan in the U.S.? What does that look like? Does that 
lead to you know higher valuations. And just explain for our listeners, Japan, since its kind of bubble economy peaked in the late 80s, has been keeping money at costing nothing. And has been the central bank has been thwarted. I mean, at some point, you're pushing on a string. Uh, you could throw all the money at the economy, and it's not going to move anything. Yeah, and and that's the idea that that what if and I, and I guess the the other part of that would be that that means we have low inflation for a long time because the biggest risk to a bond investor is not necessarily rising rates, it's rising inflation because you're getting paid back at dollars that are worth less. So that's the idea. Like, what happens if rates and inflation stay low for a while? What does that do to investors? How does that change their risk appetite? Do they go out on the risk spectrum a little further to take more high-yield bets and maybe a little riskier credit for corporate bonds and that sort of thing instead of U.S. Treasuries? Uh, I don't really know the answers to these questions, but we're already you know, pretty well into this period where we've had rates that have stayed low for long for a long time. So it's possible. You know, uh, your inaugural column for Fortune magazine, which I used to love, and I'm happy that it was rescued by this Thai investor after years of, of kind of neglect from Time, Inc. and then Meredith. Uh, so, you know, I'm elated to see your byline in there. You wrote, how to win any argument about the stock market. Uh, I'm quoting you. You recently learned Fortune was created just 90 days after the market crash of 1929 began. It's impressive that the brand has had such staying power over the years, especially in light of the ever-changing media landscape of the past couple of decades. I've always been a huge fan of Fortune's business and market profile pieces over the years and a long list of great writers they've had. So I jumped at the chance to begin writing for them when the opportunity arose. So in this first piece, it's it's delightful because it kind of – I guess people call this wealth porn on Twitter where they take an arbitrary period like, had you bought – Hanson Natural Monster Beverages on March 9th, 2000, you'd be up 17,000%. Or a lot of people throw it around with Amazon, which crossed a a trillion-dollar market cap threshold, completely ignoring the fact that Amazon, from peak to trough during dot-com 1.0, 2.0, fell like 80%. Right, yeah. Looking at that historical, oh, well, I could have become a millionaire just by putting $10,000 in. That's amazing. I'm going to do it again next time. That completely takes out the human element of, okay, you would have had to sit through losing the majority of your money that you put in there and then held on to it for years and years on end. And, you know, Jeff Bezos and a few early Amazon employees are probably the only ones who ever did that in the first place. So it's just, it's kind of that lottery ticket dream that people need to get out of because it is financial porn because, (laughs) you know, very few people have the intestinal fortitude to actually hold on to something like that. You know, and you so you point out gold, which oftentimes, I mean, between gold and Bitcoin, I'm buttonholed so many times, especially by, you know, Iranian cousins I didn't even know I had. They're telling me it's the next best thing. But you say, Farzad, you need to buy uh, Exxon. No, we, we go Bitcoin together. No, but here, gold has been sucking wind for a number of years now, down 30% since peaking in 2011. But if you were to go back to the start of 2000, gold is up 360%. However... Since 1980, gold has lost money on a real inflation-adjusted basis. Yet since the U.S. went off the gold standard in 1971, the price is up nearly 8% a year. I mean, none of those commercials point that out on late-night television. And the problem with the way most people invest is they invest at a value investor's time horizon, but they invest, you know, as a momentum investor. So they're buying after things have gone up and trying to hold on. And then they, they hold on for the entire ride down, and then they sell. And so they're doing the opposite of what you should do. So that's the idea, again, with, with getting back to the international talk we had earlier about mean reversion. People are doing the opposite of what they should do. So they're, they're buying in high and they're selling low because they get excited about something, you know, because rising, in, rising markets attract buyers and falling markets attract sellers. And that's the way that these things sort of work because we get excited when things go up and 
not when they go down, which is the opposite of a shop, what a shopper would do. So it's it's just kind of backwards how people do it. And that's why I think looking at these start and end dates, while interesting fodder for people like us to think about, don't really matter to the regular investor because, you know, if you're going to be able to try to time the tops and bottoms and all these things, you know, you're crazy. It's never going to happen. You know, as Human League put it, I'm only human, a flesh and blood I'm made. Indeed, you know, you write, since March 2009, returns are more than 16% per year for the S&P 500. Okay, March of 2009, I specifically remember two older people at Business Week magazine pulling me into an office and saying, kid, I'm just going to liquidate my 401k. I'm going to sell all my grandchildren's stocks and all this. Like, we're going to be eating cat food in a, in a bread line next year. And I didn't want to be cruel and say, look, I'm a younger guy. I know this, but we're told that time and again, when you have these capitulation-type moments or metaphorically there's blood on the streets, you have to hold your nose and go in and double down. Uh, so, yes, if you had the fortitude to stick it out in that terrifying period where we didn't know if the government was going to seize Citibank, um, yes, you would have been rewarded for taking on that risk. But going back to the peak of the dot-com bubble in March of 2000, at the turn of the century, this S&P 500 has delivered annual returns of just 5.3%. I mean, well under its long-term median. So again, and, and then and then you ask uh, investors, do you know about the rule of 72? Do you know that it takes 10 years for your money to double when it compounds at 7.2% a year? And very few people could guess that. Right, yeah. So it's, it's again, this idea of of any any sort of period you look at can can help your argument, and that's that's the problem with the way that people on on Wall Street are writing these new letters can kind of prey on people that don't understand how this stuff works because they can take any any asset and over any period of time and show you how great it would have been to be invested in it, and a lot of people just don't understand that this is how the markets work. They're they're cyclical, if nothing else. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Ben Carlson. He's Director of Institutional Asset Management at Ritholtz Wealth. He's now a columnist at Fortune. He authored the book, A Wealth of Common Sense, which is a much read. And his uh, follow-up is going to be a book on financial scams, which, you know, we, we have to Ritholtz to that extent has to open up a Boca Raton office, you know, South Florida, my stomping grounds. Um, you know, in the 10 or 12 minutes or so we have left, I'd like to open it up to what we call, uh, you know, you're a listener to the show. This is Free Skate. Adult Swim, whatever you want, open-ended. Tell me what I should be asking you about. You know, I I, I think... Or do you just want to leave and fish for muscalunge? No, I'm not. It's funny. Sometimes investment patience doesn't translate into other areas of life, so I'm not much of a... Uh, I don't have the patience for for fishing, but... Do you drink Fago? I'd like to throw as many Michigan tropes at you as possible. Yes, uh, rock and ride. <laughs> It's been a while, but yeah, you know the the people in Midwest say pops when I go to New York City and I say pop instead of soda, I get I get laughed at. Yeah, but uh, I, you know one of the things. So we I have people who in our firm who live all across the country, and we travel around to city after city to meet with clients and other people in the firm. And one of the things that I've been really sort of paying attention to is every big city we go to is just full of cranes. And so if you're trying to go again, if you're trying to use these indicators for how the economy is doing. Uh, things are still going pretty well in these big cities, and everyone is moving to the big cities. All the young people, you know, maybe that's why they can't afford a new place because they they're living in the most expensive cities in the country, and 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 that's the problem. It's just as much as their student loans. But I'm I'm wondering if we've had, you know, the the wealthy have done so much better in this snapback recovery for the past ten years than everyone else because they hold all the financial assets during the next downturn that everyone seems to kind of assume is going to be like 2008. I think that would be kind of a stretch to assume the next recession is going to be like the last one. Is it possible that these centers of wealth and all these wealthy people 
are actually going to be the ones that get hit hardest and not the, you know, lower and middle class people. Hmm. And and maybe all this wealth inequality that we've been talking about for so long, uh, maybe that ship gets evened out just a little bit in the in the next downfall. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm smart enough to answer that, but it, it seems like things are going so well in so many of these big cities that that maybe those are the places that get hit hardest the next time we see a downturn. Are you at all spooked by some of the uh, pro forma proposals by, say, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren? It's I I think you know it it doesn't really address the the the, the issue of of higher cost of education. So I think honestly, like. Would I be mad that I paid my student loans off, but then these younger kids aren't going to have to? Not really. You know, so what? I I, I missed the mark. I, I didn't get to go to the commencement speech where the guy promised to pay off my loans. You know, I, I think that's that's besides the point. But my worry would be that if we did that, then education, you know, that we'd never have any reform in the cost of how much it, it costs to go to college, and that these universities would just continue to double down and, and increase the cost because they know that, they're going to almost get a bailout in in some mm. ways by us bailing out the kids. So that'd be my my biggest worry is the fact that even if well, let's say we do this and get a short term burst in the economy and people spend some money and we get Fire Festival two out of this, you know what happens to the colleges that have been reaping the rewards for increasing their tuition much higher than the rate of the inflation for the economy. Mm. What keeps you up at night macroeconomically, internationally? I mean, I always try to get my hands around China. Now, 30 years after the Tiananmen crackdown, and so many people on this show have said that that has got to be the biggest asset bubble and financial bubble and um, you know financial engineering bubble in history, and yet it, it keeps chugging along, even albeit at a lower than 6% growth rate, if you believe the numbers. I'm not smart enough to know what happens there just because it, it seems like you know people worry about the Fed manipulating the markets here. Their government explicitly manipulates the markets there, and it's probably hard to, to actually believe any of the numbers they put out. So I'm not smart enough to, to sort of dissect what's going to happen there. I think that the one thing I've written about that sort of would keep me up at night in terms of a longer-term risk, especially in the U.S., is the big underfunded status we have at many of our municipal pensions. And I think this could potentially lead to some sort of uh, generational warfare, where all these baby boomers are expecting to receive a fat pension when they when they uh, retire, especially from these municipalities, and young people aren't going to want to put all their taxes just to pay for the baby boomers' retirement. because mm. that. So th- there's really only three ways out of it. They could earn higher returns, which seems unlikely from after what we've had for the last 10 years. The other option is they could cut back on government services, which doesn't sound like a great thing for that many people. And then the other thing is they could cut back on the actual pension benefits that they pay to their retirees. And none of those sounds very realistic, especially to politicians who are trying to get reelected. Can't those things be put back to the government, though, the pension benefit guarantee thing? I don't quite understand how that works with municipal finance. It, I, I think it, it just may eventually sort of over, overwhelm anything that they have. I don't think the government has enough of a backstop to take care of what these governments, these municipalities have promised their workers in terms of inflation kickers. And I think a lot of them just didn't really expect people to live longer in the future. Hmm. And so that's one of the things that kind of worries me is how that could shape things um, at the local government level or the state government level, or even in terms of politically, how, who gets voted in, what, what kind of promises they're making to whichever you know, generation they're trying to 
you know, pander to. Do you really have much hanging in the balance? I mean, when clients ask you about, you know, Trump winning versus, say, a Biden or one of these 25 Democrats who's in the primary field right now, does that really move the markets as much? Does it have implications for you? I think people probably put more uh, weight on that than they should. I mean, everyone thought the market was going to crash when Trump was elected. And I mean, it crashed for like four hours overnight and then has done just fine ever since. I think the president gets way too much credit when things go well and, and too much blame when things don't go well. So I think that the you know $20 trillion U.S. economy is, is hard to be controlled by any one person, let alone the president or you know even the Fed chair. You know, it's really curious when he does take credit for the stock market and other things. He was never known as kind of a master of the stock market universe. A lot of his companies went worthless on the stock market, and he was a, a bankruptcy and recapitalization and, and property you know, he was vulture at sometimes, opportunistic at other times, stuck it to creditors at other times. But yet he'll happily say that the stock market's been on fire under my watch. No, it's best to be humble, especially when the markets are reaching new all-time highs, because the market is a very humbling place. And you don't want to be the person that brags when things are going well, because then you have to sort of own it when things aren't going as well. Uh, you know, another question I have in terms of this, you, you see it sometimes in banner ads and everything, this intergenerational transfer of, what, $30 trillion of wealth going from baby boomers to Gen Xers and millennials, and and the, the latter are kind of decidedly uneducated about how to invest or how to stockpile money. I mean, is that is that just kind of a, a laughable trope that we see on, on Twitter and some of these financial services ad campaigns? The fact that how are young people ever going to save enough money to actually do something with their lives or to retire, you mean? I mean, $30 trillion at play. Do you believe that? That that's a, that's a big transfer that's about to hit people and, and it's up for grabs. And if you know how to pitch to millennials or uh, become the Venmo of XYZ or the LaCroix of, of, of this, do you know what I'm saying? Or is that... Yeah, I've been hearing that at financial conferences for years as well. That's the number people throw out. I, I, I mean, it's, it, it's not like that's going to happen all at once, that it's going to be this giant wave. If anything, it'll happen slowly but surely. And a lot of the stats actually show inheritances, you know, like most things, are are really, you know, pushed towards the top where it's going to be a small percentage of people that would see the bulk of that money come in. So how how much of an impact is it really going to have? Is it going to move the needle? Probably not. Most of it will probably stay within most of those large families. And, and so I think it's probably not going to have as much of an impact as people would like to think. And if it happens, it's going to be more of a trickle than a wave. You know, in the few minutes we have left, I could throw blockchain at you. I could throw clean tech, solar, EVs. Are there one of these things that you anticipate is going to come out of kind of left field like Netscape did in 93 and 94 that causes a whole other leg of, you know, economic boom? And then we, in fact, we do finally hit Dow 36,000. You know, I'm, I don't really have my ear to the ground on that sort of stuff. I'm, I'm usually pretty late to these <laughs> trends. <laughs> So, I mean, I think I just got my first Apple Watch in the past month, so. Yeah, but the Impossible Burger, if you look at Beyond, have you tried an Impossible Burger yet? You know, I, I'm going to be the last man in America to cut my cable, and I'm going to be the last man in America to try fake meat. I just can't wrap my head around that. I wonder how you were recruited by these Ritholtz people, you know, in, 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 <laughs> in like 42nd Street in Manhattan. I see Barry Ritholtz barreling into Grand Central or Penn Station in the morning. You know, Josh Brown, the reform broker, he's got a million followers. He's on CNBC all the time. But how does that jive with, you know, this uh, meat and potatoes guy from Grand Rapids? I always wonder how that happens or, or who brings that together. It, it did take some time for me to get used to the, uh, the New York way of life. It's a little bit of a faster pace there, especially when I go uh, – to New York. So maybe it was me getting used to them more than them getting used to me. But uh, 
I, I think it's good to have those those sort of differences of personalities because it kind of can play counterweight to one another. I guess that Ritholtz and, and, and Josh Brown have been on the show again. We love them. It's been an amazing success story in how they drive content and handholding to build a, a very successful you know, asset management business, I guess they look at you as a, a non-correlating asset. I mean, you don't, you don't, you zig when they zag, you kind of bring them back to earth. Um, you, you videotape the podcast with you and the irrelevant investor on, or you kind of joylessly look into your microphones, but it's always fascinating stuff. I mean, it's must-see TV on LinkedIn. Yeah, no, it's, it's fun. I've had a, I've had a great time with those, those guys, and I, I learned a lot from them before I even and met them. So getting a chance to work with them has been has been very rewarding for me from a career perspective and, and personally as well because I've become you know really good friends with all of them as well. In closing, if I'm sitting next to you, Ben Carlson, at a bar mitzvah or wedding, I say God forbid a funeral, or let's say a, a muscalunge fish fry in Michigan, and I say, what's the one thing I need to know, Ben Carlson? They say, like, if you sit next to a sushi chef at a wedding and the sushi chef's like, never eat sushi on a Sunday night because all the fresh fish comes in on a Monday morning. What is the one thing you can impart to me? Okay. Never pay more than $20 for a bottle of wine. No, I don't. It's, I think the thing most people probably don't pay attention to enough is their personal finances. They worry more about picking stocks or the hot new asset class or sector. And I, I think people, if they can figure out how to you know, keep their spending in check in a lot of ways and prioritize their spending, you know, spend things on, spend money on things that mean, that matter to them and cut back ruthlessly everywhere else and figure out how to save money. And that's, that's sort of way to do things. So let's say hypothetically $10,000 falls out of the sky onto your front lawn today. What do you do with it? Well, I mean, like the first step is what your risk profile and time horizon is for that money and what you need it for. And for a lot of people that, you know, comes down to what can I do to decrease the stress level of my life and where, where my financial pain points been and, and what, do I, what do I need to save for? So it's, it's tough to give blanket advice. I talk to my father-in-law sometimes, like a good rule of thumb is, you know, use a good chunk of it to extinguish debt, put a chunk of it in cash for a rainy day thing, and the other amount investing across, you know, you make sure your 529s are maxed out, everything is topped out, that, you know, that's a great method of dollar cost averaging, if you could afford it. I mean, if you need to get rid of the usurious debt first and the shackles around your legs. But Especially if you receive some sort of bonus or found money, I always like to, res- I always like to reserve a little small percentage just to have fun with. And I think, I think it's okay to have some sort of guilt-free spending every once in a while and just go nuts, but you know, keep it within reason. And I think that's, that's not a bad way to, to use your money as well. You have to enjoy it a little bit. Uh, you like to go into the city and buy yourself a Fago and a ticket to the Tigers game, huh? There we go. Oh, that famous hot dog I had in uh, uh, Detroit. Uh, sir, I can't thank you enough. Ben Carlson, Director of Institutional Asset Management at Ritholtz Wealth, new columnist at Fortune Magazine. You are beloved by this show, and you are always welcome on this show. I appreciate the love. Thanks for having me. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Enjoy this fine show on NPR member station 88.9 WCV News on NPR.org and on iTunes at link fulldradio.com and I'd be remiss if I didn't plug it one more time November 10th at the National in Richmond the Historic National Theater our first concert show with not a surf hear the stories then hear the music a concert I can't wait you can find tickets on facebook.com slash fulldradio and notasurf.com I am Robin Farzad back with you next week next week